0: So we are, uh, we are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 9. Last week we left off with Jesus healing a, a boy, who was, a young man who was possessed of a, a demon. And we're going to continue on from there. But before we do, I want to circle back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, to chapter 1, to that story that we were just talking about, where Jesus saw uh, a couple men... And and kids, be listening. Here it is. This is Mark chapter 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Remember that line. For they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. Come, follow me, Jesus said. And I will make you fishers of men. Kids, what was the word? Fishermen. <laughs> follow. Thank you, Deacon. Follow. Come, follow Me and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So about Andrew and Simon and James and John, Mark writes, they were fishermen. Now here's what that implies in the context of first century Judaism. It implies that somewhere along the line, these men didn't make the cut. Somewhere along the line, these men didn't make the cut. Otherwise, Instead of being fishermen, they already would have been disciples of some rabbi. See, this is how it worked in in Judaism. At the age of six. Anyone six years old? Yes. Bam, Hadley. At the age that Hadley is right now. Hadley, stand up so everyone can see what a six-year-old looks like. There we go. At the age of six, they entered into school. And they began learning, and their subject was the the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And for the next four years, they studied those five books of the Bible until they were 10 years old. Who's 10? Anyone? Let's stand up. Let's see a 10-year-old. Bam. All right, there's a 10-year-old. So from Hadley to I don't know your name, him... They're studying the the five books of the Bible. When they get to 10 years old, the goal was for them to have them memorized. Think about that for a second. The next time you complain, Pastor Scott, I can't memorize a verse. From 6 to 10, memorized. Memorized. Now, that weeded some kids out. And so at 10 years old, there was a a, a cut. And only the students who were the best of the best were invited to continue their education. If they didn't make the cut, they went into like some apprenticeship, they went into a family business. They started young uh, back then. But for those who were the best of the best who made the cut, then they would continue their education. And now they're studying Genesis all the way to Malachi, what we recognize as the Old Testament, and you guessed it, they're memorizing it. The Old Testament. This is insane. But this is what they did. And at 14, any 14-year-old here? Stand up, stand up. There's Emily. Now at 14, good job, Emily, there was another cut. Those people who hadn't managed to memorize it, who hadn't shown giftedness as a student, giftedness with the the word of God, they were weeded out, and that was most of the students. Only the greatest, the very greatest, the best of the best were invited to continue their education, and this is how it worked. They would go to a rabbi. They found the rabbi, and they applied basically for a job. They would ask the rabbi if they could be their disciple. And the rabbi would interview them, ask them questions, go through kind of his own filtering out process to discern, did they have what it takes to be a disciple? And to those who he thought they don't have what it takes, he'd advise them to go learn a trade, to go into the family business, become an apprentice. But to the fewest that, that really seemed to have what it takes, he would say to them, Come, follow me. And they would. They'd become his disciples. So Jesus is walking along the shores of Lake Galilee, and he sees Andrew and Simon and James and John, and Mark says they were fishermen, which means somewhere along the line, either at age 10 or at age 14, they didn't make the cut. They just, they weren't the best of the best, and it wasn't a dishonorable thing that they were fishermen, it was an honorable thing, but they weren't disciples of a rabbi. They didn't make the cut. So Jesus is walking along, and he sees them, and he says these words that had incredible meaning in the first century, come, follow me. This is a rabbi who is speaking to a couple men who didn't make the cut, and he's giving them the invitation of a rabbi to follow them. And in the first century, this is an invitation to climb up the social-religious ladder because disciples and rabbis were held in the highest regard, given the, the greatest respect and reverence. And there's nothing dishonorable about being a fisherman, but it's different than being a disciple of a prominent rabbi. And so he says to them, I'm going to give you an invitation that you weren't cut out to to get, but I'm going to offer it to you anyway, and I'm not even going to interview you. No interview process. I'm not going to discern if you've got what it takes. Here's the invitation. Come, follow me. And I've always been amazed that the disciples left everything so quickly. James and John left Zebedee, their father, in the boat and quickly followed him but in this context understanding the the culture of the first century this was like their golden ticket this zebedee would be so proud of his boys becoming the disciples of this prominent rabbi and one of the things that jesus said was there's this new kingdom coming so not only are they invited to follow this rabbi but but they're thinking there's this new kingdom coming and And our rabbi is going to be a key figure in it, and that means we're going to be prominent people in this new kingdom. It all seemed like a path up, which is what made the statement that Jesus makes today in Mark chapter 9 so difficult for the disciples to hear, so upsetting. Join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how you use it as a mirror in our life so that we might see not only you, but see ourselves a little more clearly. So show us today what it is that you want us to see. We ask through the power of your spirit that you would even transform us so that we might be more like you. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the disciples are on this path up, this path to glory, following this rabbi. Everything's going great. Jesus says this, chapter 9, verse 30. They (laughs) They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want to know didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They're now away from the crowds, Jesus is just with the disciples. And so he's got this quiet moment to to instruct them, to share with them some things that he really wants them to hear. I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to be killed. Back on the shores of Lake Galilee when Jesus said to Andrew and Peter and James and John, come follow me, This is not the script that they were imagining. This is not how that was supposed to play out. I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to be killed. This was not the path up that they had been imagining. They had been invited into this position that was reserved for the greatest, for the best of the best, They're anxious for this new kingdom that is is coming. They're eager for their role that they're going to play in the new kingdom. Jesus' success was their success. His prominence was their prominence. But his betrayal, his death, would have repercussions for them as his disciples. Figuratively speaking, his death was their death. Had they known this was the script, I wonder if when Jesus said, come follow me, they would have said, no thanks, we'd rather fish. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They'll kill me. After three days, I will rise again. This is not the first time Jesus told them that. He did it one earlier time, announced this shocking news, which upset Peter so much, that Peter took Jesus aside and Peter the disciple rebuked Jesus the rabbi. How dare you say this? This will never happen. You will not be betrayed. You will not be killed. We're not going to let it happen. Jesus, follow us. To which Peter received the sharpest rebuke that Jesus ever gave. Get behind me, Satan. For you have in mind not the things of God, but the things of man. You're thinking according to the ways of man. You're not thinking according to the ways of God, according to this new kingdom that I'm bringing. You're thinking according to the old kingdom. And so now this is the second time Jesus announces to his disciples, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be killed. They all saw what Jesus did to Peter the first time. And so this time they don't dare ask him a question. Mark writes, they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask, which I interpret this way. They didn't understand and they didn't want to understand. It's amazing how, how clouded and how confused we can become when we hear something we really don't want to hear. There's a a couple verses in Scripture that I have kind of that relationship with. I I don't understand. I'm confused. Here's one of them Luke 14, 33. Any of you who does not give up everything that you have cannot be my disciple. If you're not willing to give up everything that you have, you cannot be my disciple. It's pretty straightforward, but I, I don't understand. It's so confusing. Do I actually have to give up everything that I have, or is this just theoretical? I have to be willing to give up everything I have, and I know that Jesus really isn't going to ask me to give it up. Is it really everything that I need to give up or just some things? Surely I can be a disciple of Jesus without, being, without giving up everything. I'm so confused. Or how about this one? You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your enemy. It's so confusing. I don't get it. I don't understand. Surely enemies don't, doesn't really mean enemies. And so I can parse that and dissect that and nuance that so much that there's nothing left. It no longer says, love your enemies. Kind of what Satan did in the garden. Did God really say, you must not touch or eat of that tree or you'll die? You will not die. Let's parse this. Let's dissect it. It doesn't really mean, he didn't really mean what he clearly said. How about this verse, Luke 9, 23? If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Or Romans 12, 1 has always thrown me for a loop. I urge you in view of God's mercy to present your bodies as living sacrifices. A living sacrifice? Deny myself? Take up my cross? It's also confusing. I don't get it. You see, what was true of those first disciples is true for us as well. Jesus invites us as disciples to live lives that are radically, radically countercultural. He invites us to, to swim against the tide. He knows that this world and the values and the desires of this world are passing away, and so he invites us to that which is eternal. He invites us to live into this new kingdom. But who in their right mind is going to give up what they have? Who in their right mind is going to love an enemy or pray for someone who's persecuting them or pick up a cross or become a living sacrifice? Who's going to do that? So here's the answer to that question. Christians. That's who's going to do that. We're called to do that. Disciples of Christ. Followers of Christ. That's what we're called to. But what we like to, to think we can do is claim the name of Christ and then claim ignorance at the same time. I don't get it. Ignorance is bliss. Just kind of live in both worlds. These things I, I don't understand, I don't want to understand, but I, I like having Christ in my life. Kind of like the dogs. Happy to go for a walk. So happy to go for a walk as long as I'm leading. But to go for a walk where I'm actually following and you're you're taking me where you want to go, I don't know about that. So they came to Capernaum. Verse 33. And when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about? Apparently they start bickering as they're walking along the road and Jesus is just listening to them argue. They get to the house and he asked, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet Because on the way, they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Remember who these people are. These were the young men who at one point in their life didn't make the cut. Very clearly, it had been communicated to them, you are not the greatest. These other people, they're the greatest. You are not. But now they're in this new position, this new role, and now they're arguing with one another, which of them is the greatest? It seems to us so juvenile, seems like we're on the school playground again, arguing about whose dad can beat up whose dad. But in the culture of the day, in first century Judaism, in this hierarchical culture, they did this. They debated who was the greatest, who's the greatest rabbi, who's the greatest disciple. It's actually a fairly common debate that they would have. And so the fact that they're debating this shows how embedded they are in their culture, how shaped and formed they are by their culture. They're walking in in line with their culture, but they're still not yet following Jesus. Walking with Jesus is different than following Jesus. Walking with Jesus is, I'm going to add a little Jesus to my life that I am in control of, and my life is going this direction, and Jesus, you're happy to... To kind of follow along i'll take a little bit of you but i'm not going to follow i have i reserve the right to kind of parse that and leave some things behind jesus never said to his disciples and he never says to us walk with me he says follow me so the disciples are embarrassed they're even ashamed what are you arguing about They're beginning to understand that the ways of this rabbi are different. This kingdom that he keeps talking about, it's different than the kingdom that we're familiar with. And so Jesus doesn't shame them, doesn't condemn them, but he does take the opportunity to instruct them. Verse 35, sitting down, they sit down together. Jesus called the 12 and he said, If anyone wants to be first, must be very last And the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them, taking him in his arms. He said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me doesn't just welcome me, but the one who sent me. I want you to notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say that they were wrong for desiring to be great. He didn't condemn them for aspiring to to greatness, to significance. But what he did do was reframe that. You want to be great? Good. Now here's what greatness looks like. Here's what greatness means. You see, the problem with the disciples is not that they they wanted to be great, but it's, they wanted to be known as great. It wasn't so much the substance of greatness. It was more like we want the recognition of greatness. And also, they just didn't want to be great, but they wanted to be greater than one another. Like, which one of us is greater? Which one of us is the, the better Christian? This competitive, I'm a better Christian than you, I'm a better disciple of Christ than you, is born out of an earthly ambition, an earthly desire, and it doesn't bring glory to God. There's nothing wrong with greatness. We could even say that you and I were born to be great. We were born to be great. Now, here's what greatness means. To be great, you should not aspire to be first, but be last. To be great, you should become a servant of all. To be great, you should show love and deference to the least of these. And in that culture of the day, it was a child. A child was, was a nobody, socially invisible. Today, we elevate our children. We have children's sermons. We, we, uh, childrens are at the top of the ladder for us today. In that culture, no. A child was a nobody. To be great, you should show love and deference to the least of these, to those on the bottom of the cultural ladder, to those who haven't make, made the world's cut. Jesus takes the child, tells him, this is, this is who you need to, to love and serve. So if you want to understand greatness in the kingdom of God, don't look for who's in the spotlight. Today, Jesus might say, go down to the nursery and find out who's down there right now, who's sacrificing their time, serving some, some young children with no desire for recognition. That's where you're going to find greatness. If you want to find greatness, go to the food pantry. Find out who's feeding the hungry. You want to find greatness, go to the prison. See who's visiting the, the prisoner. Go to the shelter and see who is housing, providing safe haven for the homeless. There you're going to find what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. It's all so confusing. It's not. This morning we have the opportunity to come to the table. And one of the things that happens at the table is we see greatness. Greatness. We see greatness in the kingdom of God. Jesus, he did not come to be served, but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's greatness. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He took on the the form of a, a servant so that we might know him so that we might follow him. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He humbled himself. God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And so we come to the the table this morning. We come to greatness. And when we come to the table, we come on the receiving end. We come not having to offer anything. This is a free gift that God gives us. We come to the one who washes our feet. We come to the one who serves us. We come to the one who lays down his life for us. That's how we come. But then when we leave the table, we leave the table with him saying, I'm sending you. I'm sending you to go wash feet. I'm sending you to become a servant of all. And I'm sending you to become a living sacrifice to lay down your life for the people that you are called to love.